0: devotion time lately and what what does the word devotions mean it's kind of a Christian word it's really just a description of an interactive time that we're invited to have with God where just hopefully every day or at least regularly we read his word and we pray and we listen to the Spirit speak into our life, and we say, how does this word practically land in my life? We allow him to direct us. We allow him to correct us if we need it, to encourage us, to bless us. And so lately in my devotional time, I've been reading a psalm. And I've been trying to do that every day, and I've been doing that mostly successfully. And actually what I've been doing, among other things, is I read the same psalm every day for a week. So over and over and over again for a week. And there's just been this richness that's sort of bubbled up from parking in a particular passage of Scripture for more than just that day. And so I've particularly appreciated that, and it it was sort of a precursor. It wasn't that I was studying for what I was about to do, because my devotions is just for me and God. But um, following up on that, some time ago I decided that we would spend a number of weeks together in the Psalms, something we haven't done for four or five years now. And there's 150 Psalms, and so for the next five weeks, we're going to take one Psalm a week for the next five weeks, and we've just called this little series of talks, Summer in the Psalms. And so this morning, we're going to begin in the beginning, in Psalm 1, and it's an interesting psalm, because it really sort of sets up the 150 psalms, and really it asks this question, what kind of life do I want to lead? What kind of life do I want to lead? And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the Psalms or open it up on your device. And if you want to find it in your hard copy version of it, just open your Bible kind of in the middle and you'll probably be in the Psalms. If you're in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, you've gone a little too far. If you're in the book of Job, uh, you need to go a little bit to the right. Psalm, the very first one. And as I read this Psalm... I want to remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We don't know who wrote Psalm 1. We're not totally sure but it's placed strategically at the head of the 150 Psalms. And it's really meant to set the tone for this book of the Bible. It's really an invitation to a godly life, and it tells us that there's just very clear connections between devotion, what am I going to devote myself to, and destiny. Devotion, which results in destiny. It has very clear and very strong language. And like I said earlier, just in a variety of ways, and what we're gonna do is we're just gonna exegete this psalm, we're just gonna work our way through it, not verse by verse starting at the top, but verse by verse in different ways. But in really what the psalmist is doing is he's asking this question, as I said earlier, what kind of life do I wanna lead? And he sets up this distinct contrast that you see in verse 6. He says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. So that's one destiny. But the way of the wicked will perish. And that's another destiny. A blessed life that ends up like God would have or a life that ends up like the chaff, as it says earlier, that blows away in the wind, the back of a combine. And so the psalm sets up this whole series of contrasts. There's the negative versus the positive, the wicked versus the righteous, the guilty versus the innocent, the busted versus the blessed. And again, I ask this question, because this is what the psalmist is asking. What kind of life do I want to lead? And so let's begin by talking about the way of the chaff, the way of your chaff. Now, again, uh, more than half our church is away today out on holidays and stuff like that, but I'm sure we have some visitors here today. So many of you here will know, but some of you don't know, that I grew up in Saskatchewan, in Regina, uh, in farming country, but I was a distinct city boy. But I did have a, a little bit of experience on the farm growing up, And, you know, you really can't grow up in Saskatchewan and miss out on sort of the thrill of at least once or twice in your life standing at the back of a grain truck as the hoist, the hydraulics lifts the box of the grain truck up and they open this little chute and the pristine wheat kernels are just pouring out of the truck into the elevator, and you put your hand in the grain as it's coming down, and you just feel the richness of the kernels. It's an incredible thing to do, and if you've never done it, go find a farmer and let them get you in there so that you can do it. It's a great thing to do. And so I was very privileged to spend... Uh, summers when I was 15 and 16 years of age working on the farm. So I know just enough to be dangerous and stuff like that. But I've, I've, I've had that grain run through my hands a number of times. And it's really deeply symbolic of reaping and provision and blessing. And it's a very powerful image. I can remember the smells and the sights as I close my eyes right now. One day, though, during harvest... Uh, I think when I was 15 years old, the chaff spreader at the back of the combine broke. And it's just this mechanism that whirls around that as the chaff that's been separated, the straw and the dust and all the the junk that you don't want has been separated from the kernels of wheat, and it comes out the back of the combine, and this thing is spinning, this chaff spreader, so that the, the stuff... Flows all behind the combine that's where you see the big douse cloud behind them, and then it helps to refertilize the land for next year's crop, so it's very, you know, eco-friendly. And uh, I remember that the chaff spreader broke, and so I was invited to help fix this chaff spreader, which, if you know how how good I am at fixing things, I didn't do too much, but I got to get down and bend down on the ground, and I'm underneath there, and we're pulling this chaff spreader apart with tools, and it's dirty, and it's dusty, and you're coughing and you're hacking and there's bits of chaff that are all over you and in your hair that's back when I had hair it's in your eyes, it's in your nose it's itchy and it's dirty and it's just not the most pleasant of things when this Psalm 1 was written of course they didn't have mechanical devices like we have now but they did it in a very different manner and so in the A number of times, uh, I've been to a place called Nazareth, uh, just west of the Galilee in Israel. And in the city, the little community of Nazareth, there's an archaeologically recreated village from the era of the time of Jesus. So everything in that little five-acre piece is authentically recreated based on what the arrow would have been like when Jesus was around. So this isn't what it would have been like in Psalm 1, but very similar. And so what they do is they take a mechanism, you can see the stuff spread on the ground, and a donkey pulls a heavy thing around on top of it, and it crushes the kernels out onto the ground. And then uh, a gentleman like this takes a wooden fork, and he picks it up, as you saw in the first picture, and he throws the grain, the chaff, into the air, and the wind, and you can see it in the slide that's there now, kind of, the wind comes along and it blows the chaff away. And this is the image that you're seeing and reading about here in Psalm chapter 1. And there's this dynamic contrast between the pristine wheat kernels and the chaff that nobody wants, and it just makes you itchy and cough and hack. And the psalmist creates this powerful picture, and he's saying to you, what kind of life do you want to lead, Scott? What kind of life? you want to be the weed or the chaff? So how do you end up as the chaff? Well, it's done through a series of choices. And what we see in this psalm is you you see it pictured in verses 5 and 6 as a condition and then in verse 1 as a progression. Let's start with the condition, and so in verses 5 and 6, we see this picture of the condition, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so there's an end to all this, there's a condition that will be set in place based on our choices that we're going to read about in just a second. And it says there's going to be a judgment. And by the way, there is going to be a judgment day. Where God will individually say to the people that the picture of Scripture describes them as the wicked. And it's going to be hard for God. It's going to be a sad day. Because He will be saying to many people, you repeatedly chose to reject me and he will show them where over and over and over again he revealed himself to them he invited them in and they said no over and over again and he will say to them you chose to reject the forgiveness that my son jesus purchased for you on the cross which we celebrated today at communion. And he'll remind them of those times when they made that very deliberate choice. And he'll say, I offered Jesus to you. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. This is why he died on the cross. The Bible says all of our sin, all of my sin, was laid on him. And by rising from the dead, he conquers sin and death. And this is a theological idea, but it's very practically applied in the life of the individual that either, again, chooses to accept that grace or reject that offer from God. And God will say, you chose not to enter into an ongoing personal relationship with me that has eternity stamped on it. And friends, i got to tell you, there's not a thing in the world I could say to you that's more serious than that. And these people will perish because they wanted to. Because they chose to reject God and all that he freely offered them. And that's not God's heart. It says in Second Peter, among many other places, God's not willing that any should perish. And so he is predisposed to welcoming them in. But he gives everyone a choice. And he will have to say on that judgment day, because you rejected me, you will now enter into a godless eternity in hell. Literal, conscious torment. And i got to be honest with you, I don't particularly enjoy saying that. But I respect you too much to lie to you. We don't like to take, we don't like to digest truth in our culture often. And so the strong temptation is people will look at this book and they will lie to you. And they'll try and tell you that these things are not clearly articulated. You have to know, if you've read this book, it's very clear. And Psalm 1 is a classic illustration of this. There's a series of choices that we make that result in this destiny or that destiny. And so there's this condition, if we reject Christ, that a person heads towards. But it's also a progressive thing, and we see this in verse 1. And this is a very important concept to keep in mind. He says, blessed is the man, and then he contrasts this, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers and if you notice the verbs in that verse there's a progression and it moves from movement to non-movement to being stationary and set in your ways and we all know that the the easiest time to change direction in life is when you're moving And it becomes increasingly difficult when you stand still because you're not as fluid at that moment to make choices to change direction. And when we're seated, this is when it's the most difficult to make a change in direction. And so the psalmist pictures this and he says, we're walking. And the wicked are inviting us down the path. And they're offering up deeply attractive sinful choices that might even appear kind of good at points on the surface and as we're moving in life that's when it's easiest to move away and to say with jesus help uh, you know i'm not going to go there and i'm going to step away from that influence and that destination and i'm i'm not even going to entertain that kind of counsel and so really the psalmist is he's sort of asking, and it's a very personal question, who are you going to for advice in life? What are the sources that are informing your choices? Who who or what are you allowing to speak into your life? And he's saying when we entertain the ideas and the counsel of the wicked, who not that they're all bad, or that have all bad ideas, but they will frequently offer up ideas that stand in direct contrast to the truth of Scripture. And so, don't do it, he's saying. But you're walking, and something gets floated out to you, and you stop, and you start to mull it over in your mind. And this is the next step in the progression. And we contemplate it more seriously. And what we find happening at that point is we become increasingly comfortable with the idea that they're suggesting to us. And again, you've often heard me say this. The Bible never says, and it does not say that we should avoid pre-Christians. People outside the family of God. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, you know one of the things that he was noted for was that he was a friend of sinners. He hung out with them all the time. That John 4 passage that Jesus talked about, that Jesus that Brian talked about with Jesus and the woman at the Samaritan, well, she, she was outside the family of God, and this was scandalous in that culture for him to be doing this. But he deliberately, because God's heart are for the lost peoples of this world, Jesus reached out to her and brought her into the family of God. And so it's not a matter of avoiding people outside the family of God. The thing that Jesus did not do, though, is he did not take their advice on how to do life. He did not accept their take on approaching life. And they were, if you read his stories, they were always trying to get him to do this or to do that. And he would consistently say, no. And he would say this, I am here to do my Father's will. I am here to do my Father's will. And so even though he hung with uh, people, irreligious people, outside of the family of God all the time... He didn't participate in their sinful choices. He didn't pattern his life after those choices. And then it says in verse 1, you go from moving to the place of standing still and entertaining-less to sitting down with the mockers of God and buying season tickets in lazy boy chairs and you get very comfortable sitting there. At least temporarily until the reality of the choices you're making start to visit you in life and so the psalmist says this can be both an overt and and, and as well very uh, subtle thing, but it's ultimately destructive and and the things that <laughs> you know I wrestle with personally but I also hear from lots of people there's two things I always hear with this as I see the progression unraveling in their life they will say things or I'll say things like this I can handle it I hear this all the time I can handle it and then I hear the classic they don't use these words but it a tantamount to this I'm a special case I can handle it and I'm a special case And, of course, these are lies from the pit. And we end up sitting in the seat of mockers. I read this. There's some certain kind of red ants that have a passion for this very sweet glandular substance that's given off by the caterpillar of a large blue butterfly. And they become, these red ants, increasingly addicted to this uh, oozing substance from the caterpillar. So much so that they're starting to gorge themselves on it and they want more and more of it. So they actually get all together and they pick the caterpillar up and they carry it to their home. And the caterpillar loves this because as the adult ants are slurping away at the substance that they are secreting the caterpillar gorges himself on one of his favorite foods ant larva now normally if something threatens the offspring of the ants they will do anything they can they will sacrifice their life to defend their offspring but because they've gotten the taste for the substance And they're so busy eating it, they don't realize that all their young are being eaten. And the psalmist is just saying, hey boys, you can be a lot like the ant. And so we're often solid, dependable people, hardworking people, ready to sacrifice, ready to Sacrifice ourselves for our kids, whatever the case may be. But the wicked walk by and they offer a smell and a little taste and a nibble. And eventually, chaff. So the rest of the psalm stands in stark contrast to this because, again, it's all about um, devotion that results in destiny. So then he says, listen, there's another path, and he he calls it the way of the blessed. And so he says in verse 1, blessed is the man, blessed is the individual who delights, it says in verse 2 and 3, who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, He meditates, he he chews on, he ruminates on, he meditates on this day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. And so the image here is not of a tree that's growing in the wild, relying on rainfall that may or may not come, and they have basically in Israel, where this is pictured, a six months of rain, and they, don't, and they get very little rain, and then six months of what we would call severe drought. Um, he's, not, he's saying this is not the image of the tree. No, when he says streams of water, this is a Middle Eastern method of cultivation where irrigation channels are deliberately dug. So what little water they have, and they, they are extremely careful with water. What little water they have flows between the rows of the trees. And, and right there you can have desert-like conditions. And right here you can have lush trees. Because it's getting a rich supply of moisture to produce a strong, healthy tree. And Israel has one of their things they love to say. Is they love to say, and they're very proud of this. We have made the desert bloom. We have made the desert bloom. And it's very true. It's very true. Because of the way they uh, use, it's one of the least resourced regions in the world. And yet they have made the desert bloom. Think about where would we be without irrigation in southern Alberta? And certainly you can grow crop here, um, not like where I grew up in Regina where you get these massive bumper crops with no irrigation. But here in southern Alberta you can have some level of, of, of growth of good crop, but irrigation raises the possibility of much more significant return. And this is the kind of effort God puts into blessing the individual in Psalm 1. And it says God will bless their words and their work and their life. So how do we receive this blessing? How do we live this kind of life? This is, as I always say, this is never about a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's never about trying to earn your way into God's good books. Really what it is, it's like coming to attention like a military person and being actively prepared to listen and sincerely saying to God, I don't even know what this totally means, but uh, I'm prepared to devote my life to you today. This is your day. And because uh, I know that you will create a pathway that's the best way to live life for me. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, as you'll often hear me say, to be a devoted Christ follower, it's often more difficult than what people who are outside of the family of God experience. But it's the best way to do life ultimately. And we begin by saying, listen, I want to thank you so much for these, the scripture calls them laws, these healthy boundaries you've put in place. And I know that they're for my own good, they're for my safety, they're so that I can enjoy life more. Have you ever played game with, with people where they're, they refuse to play by the rules? And, you know, sometimes we just do silly things and who cares about the rules. But if it's even semi-serious, which life often is, right? When Have you played with people that refuse to play within the rules? Or they think that somehow the rules don't apply to them? That gets old really quickly and frustrating really quickly. And so we say, God, in gratitude for all that you've done, I want to honor you with my life. And today, here's my life. Would you shape my decisions in light of what you've said in Scripture? Would you mold me into the kind of person you want me to be? And I'm actually going to delight in what you've written for me in my word. Because I trust you, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to meditate on it. And when I approach his word that way, It means I I begin to reflect on what's coming up in life in light of what he said in his word. And how does that actually impact it? That I'm going to determine to regularly take a portion of Scripture. Maybe it's a small amount. Maybe it's a larger amount. And I'm going to consider it. And I'm prayerfully going to consider it. I'm going to mull it over. And I'm going to say, God, how does this get really up close and personal with me? I don't want this just to be another talk that I've heard or another passage that I've read in a purely informational way, but in a practical, life-changing way. So let me give you an example. Let's say you were reading uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, which says that love is actually sincere. Great concept. You know, it's kind of up in the clouds there somewhere. Love is sincere. uh, But... As I consider that, and as I prayerfully consider it, I say, God, I'm going to work today. And there's this person that I'm going to have to interact with. What does it mean? What does it really mean, Lord, for me to love that person sincerely? I'm not saying you take abuse from them or whatever, things like that, but what does it really mean to love them sincerely? What does it mean in that context or with my kids, this situation with my kids? My spouse has called me. There's been a deal with one of my children, and I'm coming home later, and I'm going to have to interact with this. What will it mean for love to be sincere with my child in this situation? I love them, but I'm going to have to step in and I'm going to have to bring some correction. And I bring this correction in this discipline because I do love them. In fact, it would be distinctly unloving not to bring correction. So what does it really look like in a measured way for love to be sincere in this situation, Lord? I'm not totally sure. Would you help me know? And then, just as importantly, would you fill me with your spirit and empower me to actually love sincerely? And so, God rolls this scripture over and over in our mind, and by the power of the spirit, as he reveals this to me, I live it out. The way of blessing is progressive as well. And so eventually in the power of the fullness of the Spirit, I begin to see larger and larger amounts of life in light of Scripture, in light of the leading of the Spirit. And the Spirit's leading will always be consistent, never inconsistent with Scripture. And, and it begins to flavor and impact more and more choices that I make every day. You know, some of you have heard me say this, but once in a while I'll cook things, not very many things and not very good. But one of the things I do cook once in a while is chili. I think I've told you this story, some of you anyways. And everybody makes their chili differently depending on their mood and their preferences. But maybe you add hamburger and Maybe you add onions and tomatoes whole or crushed and some soup perhaps and different kinds of beans and maybe mushrooms and, of course, a variety of spices and maybe you add other things as well. And you more or less put all of these things in a pot and you begin to season it and you put in chili powder and you put in one, two or three tablespoons and when Debbie isn't looking, you put in one or two more because you like it a little spicier. And uh, you, you get it flavored and you begin to cook it and as you're stirring it and when you first taste it, you think, I need to add more spice. But I've learned with chili to just pause at that moment because it's best to heat it through thoroughly and stir it. And increasingly what happens, the spices begin to get released and they begin to permeate the dish more and more and flavor it. And you need to be patient and give it time to work. In fact, what I've I found anyways is it's best to heat it thoroughly through, let it cook through, and then cool right down. And then actually when you get closer to eating it, to heat it back up again. And again, it just allows another layer of spice to flavor and permeate the mix. And it makes the chili good. Devotion and destiny. What kind of life do you want to lead? Let's pray as we conclude our service. And uh, as... I conclude in prayer, if you'd like to come and pray with someone about anything, Daryl is going to be up here on the right, my right, your left. He's one of the leaders in our church. He'd be honored to pray with you. Uh, Let's pray together. You know, Lord, just being really open with you, life (laughs) life is complicated. And we have so many things competing for our direction in life. So many voices, so many different things trying to invite us down a path. And so I, for one, find it complicated to make the kind of choices that would honor you. And so I pray that you would give us real clarity. Because we do believe down in our heart that your way is the best. Help us to understand your way. Help us to, in very practical ways, take what you're saying and by the power of your spirit then implement it in our day-to-day life. And sometimes, Lord, your choice is very clear, but maybe I don't have the courage to do it. So, Lord, give me courage that only comes from you, that only comes from the power of your spirit at work in my life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that for each person that's here this morning. And I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I remind you as you go about our whoop-up barbecue on the 19th. If you can help, uh, if you'd like to pray on the prayer team or whatever the case may be, Brian is out at his display there. You can sign up. Be sure you come, and we'll celebrate with our friends and new friends together. Amen.